building. And those of you that's watching online, thank you for joining us. Uh, let's stand together and let's have prayer. And uh, we're going to ask the Lord to lead us in uh, this study tonight and uh, just to guide us and direct us. And, uh, and of course, if you have a prayer request tonight, you can signify that uh, by the lifting of your hands. Uh, the Lord knows those needs. Um, and, uh, and we are thankful for a God that can touch these needs for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray tonight. Lord, we thank you for bringing us into this house. We thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your kindness. And we ask that you would be with us tonight in this house. Those that are watching by live stream, we pray that they would feel your touch, feel your anointing, feel your love. And we pray for healing for those that are sick, salvation for those that are lost. Lord, those that just need to feel your presence tonight, we ask that you would wrap your arms around them, send the angels of comfort to be with them tonight. God, and let us feel your presence. We thank you for what you're going to do. Open our hearts, our ears, our minds to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. And uh, we are continuing our series tonight. We are on lesson four. And, uh, and if you have missed any of the lessons, these are all online. Or if you would like the notes um, that I teach from, I will give you these notes. Uh, we can make that happen um, this is always great to have, uh, to reference back to uh, sometimes here and there. And so we have went through, uh, we've talked about uh, the last three lessons. The last lesson we talked about Joseph, and this is all from the book, The Bait of Satan, um, that you can purchase, and I won't go through everything of where you can purchase it, but this is from the book, The Bait of Satan by John Bevere. And, uh, and every week we have said this one thing, Brother Aaron, let's put that next slide up. We have that next one. Our response to an offense determines our future. How we respond to an offense will determine our future. If, uh, if you haven't caught on yet, um, I'll tell you now, this whole series is about offenses and learning how to overcome being offended. And so the last lesson we talked about last week uh, we talked about Joseph and how Joseph went through everything that he went through, being thrown into the pit, being uh, disgraced by his brothers, being forgotten, thrown into prison, lied about, talked about. He went through all of this his entire life, and from what we have read in the Bible, he was never offended. Um, it seemed that he had a right to be offended, but he refused. And so tonight, we're going to talk about a man who was referred to as the man after God's own heart. We know who we're going to talk about? We're going to talk about David tonight. And uh, David had a lot of opportunities to be offended. Um, he had a lot of opportunities to be offended with King Saul. And King Saul, if, if you go and you read in Samuel, uh, we can read that King Saul deliberately tried to kill David, and yet David still refused to be offended. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And I wonder how many of us would not become offended with someone who was trying to kill us. That's a pretty serious offense right there. Um, they have laws against that. I, I think many of us would be offended. And David was mistreated by a man that, unfortunately, it was by a man that he had hoped would become his father. He, he kept trying to understand where he had went wrong and what could David have done to turn Saul's heart against him? What was it uh, that, that he did to make Saul so mad? And then how could he win it back? 
But David proved his loyalty to Saul by sparing Saul's life, even though Saul aggressively pursued David. 1 Samuel chapter 24, uh, 6 and 7, David said this. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master to kill Saul. Because this is where David had chased Saul into the cave. And, oh, well, Saul was sleeping in the cave and David had went and had the opportunity to kill him. But he told his men, he said, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Verse 7, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And then Saul woke up the next morning. Saul left the cave. He went his way. And then David cried out to Saul with his head bowed to the ground. And he said, know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand. And I have not sinned against thee. So David tells Saul, hey, you've been chasing me. You've been trying to kill me. I had the opportunity and I didn't kill you. Once David knew that he'd shown his loyalty to his leader, his mind was at ease. David's mind was at ease. But then later he learned more devastating news that Saul was still trying to kill him. He was still trying to bury him. But David refused to raise his hand against the one who was seeking his own life. God had even put the army to sleep and had given him a companion who pleaded for permission to kill Saul. And David could have thought in his mind, well, if my companion does it, that's not me doing it. If, if, my, if, if my armor bearer, if my servant, if, my, if, my, if this person does it, if my friend does it, but I've learned that offense will make excuses to benefit the offended. An offense will make an excuse to benefit the person offended. And David somehow sensed that this sleeping army served another purpose, the testing of his very own heart. And God wanted to see whether David would kill to establish his kingdom after the order of Saul or just allow God to establish his throne in righteousness forever. Romans 12 and 19 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. This is where God's telling He's saying, listen, all of you that are here, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. It is righteous for God to avenge his servants. It is unrighteous for God's servants to avenge themselves. Allow God to avenge you, not the avengers. Allow God to avenge you, not yourself. Saul was a man who avenged himself. He chased David, a man of honor, for 14 years, and he murdered priests, and he murdered their families. And as David stood over sleeping Saul, David faced a very important test at this moment. It would reveal whether or not David still had a noble heart of a shepherd, get this, or the insecurity of another Saul. Saul had insecurities, so he was trying to kill David, to take care of David, to get David out of the picture. And when David was given the opportunity to kill Saul, would David stand there with the noble heart of a shepherd or the insecurity of Saul? Would he remain a man after God's own heart? See, initially, 
It's much easier when we take matters into our own hands rather than waiting on a righteous God. God will test his servants with obedience. He deliberately places us in situations where the standards of religion and society would appear to really justify our actions. And he allows others, especially those close to us, to encourage us to protect ourselves. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about those walls that we put up because we try to fight against offenses. We put walls up. But what happens is when we put walls up to try to protect our life, we block ourselves from giving life. I don't think there's anything wrong with protecting ourselves, but sometimes we get to a point where we protect ourselves too much that we begin to harm others because we're not giving of ourselves. We may think that that we're noble to protect others by avenging ourselves, but that's not God's way. It's the way of the world's wisdom. It is earthly and it is fleshly. So here's a leader who's corrupt. Here's Saul. And so my first question I ask you tonight is how can God use corrupt leaders? Why does God put people under leaders who make mistakes? I don't know if y'all know this tonight, but your pastor makes mistakes sometimes. Why would God put you under a leadership of a pastor or a leader who makes mistakes. Leaders are human, just like you, just like me. Leaders are flesh. Leaders make mistakes. Some leaders make very serious mistakes, or they make choices that don't always go well. When leaders make mistakes or they make a choice and they offend, does that give us the right to change a church? Does that give us the right to go and walk away? I'm going to hit it hard tonight. If we look at the childhood of Samuel, it was God, not Satan. It wasn't the devil. It was God who put this young man under the authority of a corrupt priest named Eli. He also had to work under Eli's two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were also priests. And these men were wicked. They were wicked. And I don't mean like in a Boston, they are wicked awesome. I mean they were wicked. They were evil. They took offerings by manipulation and force. They committed fornication with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle. Could you imagine if you were serving a minister who lived this kind of life? If you worked with a minister, if you served in a church, a minister who was so insensitive to the things of God that he couldn't recognize, the Bible says, a woman who was in prayer, and then he accused her of being drunk. Eli was so compromising that he did nothing about his sons, whom he appointed as leaders, who were committing fornication right in the church. Most Christians today would be offended, and they would leave and search for another church telling others as they went out about the wicked lifestyle of their former pastor and his leaders. And in the midst of this corruption, this is what Samuel did. 1 Samuel 3 and 1. And the child Samuel, the child Samuel, ministered unto the Lord before Eli. But corruption took its toll. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. So we read here, The child Samuel, so the little boy Samuel, ministered unto the Lord before Eli. 
And the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. God had seemed distant to the entire Hebrew community. And the lamp of God was about to go out in the temple of the Lord. Yet Samuel, Samuel didn't go look for another place to worship. Samuel saw that the light was going dim, but he didn't choose to go find a bonfire somewhere else at another church. He didn't go to the elders to expose the wickedness of Eli and his sons. He didn't form a committee to put Eli and his sons out as pastor. He didn't try to take over the temple and make himself the priest. Because, see, God had spoken directly to Samuel and not Eli. So Samuel ministered to the Lord. God had placed Samuel there. And he was not responsible for the behavior of Eli or his sons. He was put under them, not to judge them, but to serve them. He knew Eli was God's servant, not his servant. He knew that God was capable of dealing with his own servants. And he knew it was not his place. So he did what God called him to do, and that was to serve. Children do not correct their fathers. Where's my kids? Y'all listening tonight? My kids, do not correct your father. It's the duty, though, of fathers to train and correct children, right? We're to deal with and we're to confront those whom God has given us to train. It's our responsibility. Those on our own level, we, we are to encourage and exhort as brothers and sisters, but, but, but we're not supposed to condemn those that God has placed over us. We leave that to God. And this isn't a, hey, don't touch me as your pastor. This isn't that kind of thing tonight. I'm talking about our response to those that are in authority over us. And I'm talking to myself tonight, too. Samuel served God's appointed minister the best that he could without pressure to judge him or correct him. The only time that Samuel spoke a word of correction was when Eli came to Samuel and asked him what prophecy God had given him the night before. But even then, it was not a word of correction from Samuel, but it was from God. And I think if more people can get a hold of this truth, our churches would be different. Not just our church, our churches would be different. Because I'll tell you tonight, my second point, churches are not cafeterias. We're not cafeterias. In this world that we're living in, this generation that we're living in today, men and women leave churches so easily. If something is wrong with leadership, they leave. If something is wrong with the chairs, they leave. If something is wrong with the air conditioning or the heat, they leave. The music, they leave. Maybe it's the way that pastor takes up an offering. Maybe it's the way that, that pastor speaks. Maybe it's the way the money is spent. If they don't like how the pastor preaches or what he preaches, they leave. He's either not approachable or he's too familiar. The list will go on and on and on and on and on. And rather than face a difficulty and maintain hope, so many people run to where there appears to be no conflict. But Jesus, we have to understand this, Jesus was the only perfect pastor. And even Jesus made people mad. Jesus made people mad. Let me say that again. Even Jesus made people mad. So why do we run from difficulties instead of facing them and working through them? When we don't hit these conflicts head on, we usually will leave 
offended. And sometimes some will say, well, our ministry is just not received or appreciated here. Or others will say, they just take me and they take my money for granted. I'm going to show them. I'm going to take my ball and go home. Anybody ever play at recess with anybody like that? Anybody ever have one of those friends in your life? Unfortunately, I had a friend like that. And he, he gets so mad. We're like, no, we're sorry. You can be the captain. Don't take your ball and go home. He's actually going to preach here in a couple weeks. It was my brother. My brother was like that for a little bit. He gets so mad. He's a, he's a great guy now. Um, but he, uh, he gets so mad. And he, get, he gets so upset. And he goes, you know what? I'm, gonna take the, I'm taking my stuff. And we're like, no. You drove us here. We all rode with you tonight. No, you're the one that has all the softball stuff. We need you. This is the only reason you need me. No, we need you to play too. You even us out. And we give him our time. He gets so upset and he realized what we were doing and he just stopped letting him bug him. But, but sometimes some of us, we get so upset with something that's so small, but we have let that seed get inside of there. And once that seed begins to hatch, it goes from, from just a seed into a weed, into a plant. That plant becomes a bush. That bush becomes a tree. That tree becomes a really big part of your life. And I don't know if you know this or not. I've never had a whole lot of experience in this, but it's a whole lot harder to chop a tree down than it is to pluck a seed out. And if you're standing under that tree, it's probably going to hurt. So when these little seeds of offense, I, I told you all a couple weeks ago, my wife has this, this saying she's been saying. I don't know what book she's been reading, but I love it. She's saying, hey, pluck the seeds out, pull the seeds out. And baby, if you're not reading a book and that's, from, that's you, God gave you that, mm, you all got to get up here and preach. Stop preaching to me. Stop preaching, start preaching to everybody else. My, my wife can preach, y'all. But she says, take those seeds out. Take those seeds out. Get rid of those seeds. Get rid of those seeds of bitterness. Get rid of those seeds of anger, those seeds of hurt, those seeds of past failure. Get rid of those seeds because those seeds will become a tree. And what happens is, is instead of giving the offense to God, these hurt people that have allowed these seeds to form in their life will go from church to church to church to pastor to pastor to pastor, looking for a place with flawless leadership. And I've got news for everybody that's here tonight and those of you that are watching online. I'm just going to tell you, there is no such place as a perfect church. There is no such pastor as a perfect pastor, but we serve a perfect God. I can, I, I can look around this church if it was full of thousands of people and find flaws in everybody. And those same people can look back at this person and find just as many flaws in this person. There is no perfect church. There is no perfect pastor. But we serve a perfect God. We've got to give these offenses to God. I don't care where you go. If you don't get victory over offense, that offense will come back over and over and over and over again. In my working for the kingdom, I've had many opportunities to become offended with leadership in my life. With leadership who was over me. And I look back and most of the times, 
I could have been offended, but really it was, it was my fault. <laughs> or it was my immaturity. Many times I had the chance to become critical and judgmental with leadership in my life, but, but leaving was not the answer. Quitting was not the answer. I had to get my spirit right. And most people think churches are like cafeterias. goes back to my point. Some of y'all had that over here. When are you going to talk about cafeterias again? They like to pick and choose from what they like. I know a lot of people loved being in quarantine back in 2020. They loved being in quarantine because they could go to this church for the music. They could go to this church for the preaching. And they could go to this church for the altar call. And then they could go to this church for this and this church for this, and this church for that. And pretty soon what has happened, though, is that person that got so entangled with everybody else's church, when it's time to come back to church, they don't know where to go. And so they stay at home, and they stay on, they stay on this. And I posted something a couple weeks ago, and I got a lot more response than I thought I would. I just shared it. I didn't even preach it. But it was Pastor Anthony Mangan, and he said, listen, I'm sick and tired of all these people at home. Got your cup of coffee sitting in your pajamas on Sunday morning watching church. You're, you're going against what the Bible says because the Bible says, forsake not the fellowship of one another, the assembling of ourselves. We have got to be in church. We don't have a perfect church. How many of you love every single thing about Sunday service? That's what I thought. Nobody's hand went up. Pastor can pull his hand down too. There's things that I think we could do better. There's things I wish we did differently. There's nothing that's perfect about our church. We're never going to find that. But people will say, well, I feel freedom. I feel freedom at this church. And that I, I, you know, I left there. I didn't have a lot of freedom there, but I found a church. I've got freedom. And they're going to stay there as long as there's no problems. But this does not agree with what the Bible teaches. You are not the one who chooses where you go to church. God chooses that. The Bible, the Bible does not say God set the members, every one of them in the body, just as they please. This is 1 Corinthians 12 and 18. God didn't say God set the members, every one of them in the body, wherever they want to go. It says God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. As it's pleased him. If you are in the place where God wants you, the devil will try to offend you to get you out. Mm. If you're where God wants you, the devil will try to offend you to get you out. I know that I am where God wants me. Because every morning when I have to wake up at 4.30... I am offended that I have to wake up so early in the morning to go start a bus. This morning, Jackson and I were walking. Jackson rides the bus with me first thing in the morning. He's right there starting the bus with me, warming it up. And uh, this morning, we're walking out, and he goes, you know how angry I am right now? I said, no, I don't. He goes, well, I'm very angry. I said, why? He goes, because it's so cold. We shouldn't have to be out here. I said, buddy, I know. I hear you, but kids got to get picked up. They got to go. He goes, yeah, I know, but I could be home sleeping. I said, all of us wish we were home sleeping. Every morning I wish I would. He just popped up from the sound booth. Okay, God, you're paying attention back there tonight. He's running our cameras tonight. Every morning I have to wake up. I'm offended that I got to get up so early. 
My bed is wanting to hold me, especially cold days like today. So I know that that's where I'm supposed to be. But the devil wants to uproot men and women from the place where God has planted them. And if the devil can get you out, then he's been successful. But if you will not budge, even in the midst of great conflict, you will spoil Satan's plan. Because see, most of the time, it is not God's will for you to change churches. And I'll explain that in the next section, okay? We're in the next section now. See, the planted people flourish. Those that are planted flourish. The Bible says in Psalms, David told us this, Psalms 92, those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. The words that we see here, those who flourish are planted in the house of the Lord. What happens to a plant if you transplant it every three weeks? If you plant a plant, three weeks later you pick it up, you move it, you set it down again. Three weeks later you pick it up, you move it, you say, Brother Nick, you're a farmer. It doesn't grow very well, does it? I'm glad you said no because I've never farmed before. I was hoping that was the answer. But I know for flowers and whatnot, you got to let them sit there for a little bit. you got to let them grow. You can't keep moving them. Most of you know that a plant's root system will diminish and it will not blossom or prosper or grow if it is constantly being transplanted to a different place. If you keep transplanting that plant, it will die of shock. Many people go from church to church, ministry team to ministry team, trying to develop their ministry. And if God puts people in a place where they are not recognized and encouraged, they are very easily offended. I want to tell you today, I do not do a great job. I I am not good enough at complimenting people and building people up. I'm, I'm very sorry. I thank every one of you who are here tonight. You are awesome. You are great. Those of you watching online, thank you so much. But that's a flaw that I have. I don't appreciate enough of what people do for the house of God. I I just, and, and I'll tell you why. I don't know. I don't know why I don't do that. I don't know, maybe it's, I've done this all my life and I just, I, I don't know. But there's times that we don't hear it enough, me included, And you just feel like, am I even supposed to be here? God, are they even listening to what I say? When I preach, are they even listening? Does does anybody see what we're doing? If we're not recognized and encouraged, we get easily offended. If they don't agree with the way that something is done, they are offended and they want to go someplace else. When they leave the blame, when they leave, they blame the leadership. Listen to this. Many people are blind to any of their own character flaws and do not realize that God wanted to refine and mature them through the pressure they were under. So let's learn from the examples that God gives us with plants and trees. When a fruit tree is planted in the ground, a fruit tree has to face rainstorms, a hot sun, a cold winter, wind, And if a young tree could talk, it might say, excuse me, can you get me out of here, please? Can you put me in the barn? Can you take me in the house? 
Can you put me where there is no sweltering heat or windy storms? And if the gardener or farmer listened to the tree, it would actually harm it. Trees endure the hot sun and rainstorms by sending their roots deeper. The adversity that they face is eventually the source of great stability. The harshness of the elements surrounding them causes them to seek another source of life. And they will one day come to a place that even the greatest of windstorms cannot affect their ability to produce fruit. My dad was raised in California. And he was raised in part of California, the San Joaquin Valley. And they had all kinds of different fruit trees there. And within 30 miles of Tulare, California, where he was raised, um, that's where the sun-kissed oranges were grown. They were grown right there, about 30 miles from where he was at. And the colder that the winter was for the trees, the sweeter the oranges would be in the spring. If we would not run so fast from spiritual resistance, our root system would have a chance to become so much stronger and deeper and our fruit would be plentiful and sweeter in the eyes of God and more desirable to God's people. We should not resist the very thing that God sends to us to mature us. The psalmist David, inspired by the Holy Ghost, made a powerful connection between offense, the law of God, and our spiritual growth. He wrote in Psalms 1, Blessed is the man, and I'm paraphrasing this tonight, I paraphrase it on the screen, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And then in Psalms 119, verse 165, he gave us more insight into people who, got, who love God's laws. He says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. When we have peace, great peace have they which love thy law, nothing shall offend them. It's not saying that we won't want to be or we might be tempted to be, but it does say nothing shall offend us. Verse 3, if we go back to Psalms 1, it describes the destiny of a person who is not offended. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. In other words, if we choose to delight in the word of God in the midst of adversity, we will avoid being offended. We will be like a tree whose roots search deep into the spirit where we will find strength and nourishment. We will draw from the well of God deep within our spirit. When we mature, when we are mature, adversity will be the catalyst for fruit. When we are mature, adversity will be the catalyst for fruit. Jesus had a parable about the sower. In Mark chapter 4, it says, And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time, 
Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the world's sake, immediately they are offended. Once someone leaves the place that God has chosen for them, their root system begins to dwarf. And the next time, it will be easier for them to flee from adversity because they have not, or they've been careful not to root themselves too deeply. That, that goes where the walls come up again. We've put these walls up, and so we don't want to let anybody in. But in our time of not letting anybody in, we've also blocked ourselves from helping other people. And what happens is these people end up coming to a place where they have little or no strength to endure hardship or persecution. And they then become a spiritual vagabond that's wandering from place to place, suspicious and afraid that others will mistreat them. They're crippled and hindered in their ability to produce true spiritual fruit. And they struggle in a self-centered life that is just eating the remains of the fruits of others. When you look at Cain and Abel, the first two sons of Adam, Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the works of his own hands, the fruit of the vineyard. It was brought forth with much toil. He had to clear the ground of rocks. He had to clear stumps. He had to clear debris. He had to plow. He had to cultivate. He had to plant. He had to water. He had to fertilize. He had to protect his crops. He put much effort in his service towards God. And it was his own sacrifice rather than obedience towards God's way. It was symbolized the worship of God by one's own strength and ability rather than by God's grace. Abel, on the other hand, brought an offering of obedience, the choice firstborn of his flock. He did not labor as Cain did to bring this forth, but it was dear to him. Both brothers would have heard how their mother and father had attempted to cover their nakedness with fig leaves, which represented their own works to cover their sin. But God demonstrated acceptable sacrifice by covering Adam and Eve with the skin of an innocent animal. Adam and Eve were ignorant of this unacceptable covering of their sin, but having been shown God's way, they were no longer ignorant, nor were their children. And so Cain had tried to win God's acceptance apart from his counsel. And God responded by showing he would accept those who came to him under the parameters of grace, like Abel's sacrifice, and he would reject what was attempted under the domain of knowledge of good and evil, Cain's religious works. And God then instructed Cain that if he would do good, he'd be accepted. But if he would not choose life, then sin would master him. And Cain became offended. Cain didn't just become offended with everyone around him. Cain became offended with the Lord. And rather than repent and do what was right, allowing this situation to strengthen his character, he then vented on to Abel his anger and his offense with God. Then what did he do? He done killed Abel. And God said to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, And now thou art, now art, and now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. 
When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond thou shalt be in the earth. The thing that Cain had feared most to be rejected by God, he brought it on as a judgment on himself. The very medium through which he tried to win God's approval was now cursed by his own hand. The bloodshed now brought a curse, and the ground would no longer give up its strength to him, and fruit would only come through great effort. Thanks a lot, Cain. Thanks a lot. Offended Christians cut off their own ability to produce fruit. Jesus compared the heart with soil in the parable of the sower. And just as Cain's fields were barren, the soil of an offended heart is barren and it's poisoned by bitterness. Offended people still may experience miracles, words of utterances, strong preaching and healing in their lives, but these are gifts of the Spirit, not fruits. We will be judged according to fruit, not gifting. Because a gift is given and fruit is cultivated. Notice that God said that Cain would become a fugitive and a vagabond as a result of his actions. There's numerous spiritual fugitives and vagabonds that are in churches today. Their gifts of singing, preaching, and prophesying and so on are not received by leadership in their previous church. So they leave. And they're running aimlessly and they carry on an offense looking for the perfect church that will then receive their gift and heal their hurts. And they feel as if they are a modern day Jeremiah. It's just them and God and everyone else is out to get them. And they become, here's what happens, they become unteachable. They get what is called a persecution complex. Everyone is out to get me. They comfort themselves that they are just a persecuted saint or a prophet of God. And they're suspicious of everyone. And this is exactly what happened to Cain. You look at what he says in Genesis 4 and 14. Behold, thou hast driven me out of this day from the face of the earth. And from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. Cain had the persecution complex. Everyone was out to get him. And it's the same today. Offended people believe everybody is out to get them. With a persecution attitude, it is difficult for people to see areas in their own lives that need change. If you live your life with an attitude of persecution, a woe is me, everybody hates me, I might as well go eat some worms, it's going to be difficult for you to see areas in your own life that needs change. Why is it? Well, it's because these people isolate themselves and they conduct themselves in such a manner that invites abuse. Proverbs 18 says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. I'll tell you tonight, God never created us to live separately and independently of each other. 
This is where it comes in. Forsake not the assembling of ourselves. We need to be together. We need each other. We need each other, ladies and gentlemen. I can't do this alone. You can't do this alone. And, 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 and God likes it when his children care and nurture for one another. Just as parents love it when their kids get along, God likes it when his kids get along. But God gets frustrated, I believe, when we sulk and we feel sorry for ourselves and making everybody else responsible for our happiness. He wants us to be active members of the family. He wants us to get our life from him. An isolated person seeks only his own desire, not God's. He receives no counsel and he sets himself up for deception. Now, I'm not talking about season in which God calls individuals apart to equip them and to refresh them. I've been describing those, though, tonight who have imprisoned themselves, the walls. They wander from church to church, relationship to relationship. They isolate themselves in their own world, and they think that all who do not agree with them are wrong and are against them. They protect themselves in their isolation and they feel safe in the controlled environment that they have set up for themselves. And they no longer have to confront their own character flaws. Acquiring an offense keeps you from seeing your own character flaws because blame is deferred to another. When you acquire an offense, it keeps you from seeing your own character flaws because you start blaming everyone else. Rather than facing the difficulties and try to escape the test, the character development that comes only as they work through conflicts while others with others is lost as the cycle of offense begins again. My wife has a saying. If adults would just talk to each other, things could be solved a lot quicker. If people would just have an adult conversation, what happens is, is we get so upset with this person or this person, our spouse, our, our sibling, our parent, our child. We don't want to talk to them. We get so frustrated. We get so mad, a coworker, a boss. And when this conflict happens and we try to run away from it, that offense gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And rather than trying to come together and build one another up and strengthen one another, we start going away from each other and building our own kingdoms, building our own walls. I pray that as offenses come, and they will come, I pray that we will use them as a strengthening tool. I pray tonight that offenses will cause our roots to grow down deep in the soil of the Word and the Spirit. And I pray tonight that offenses will make us to be like the tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth much fruit. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not to be offended. God told us that. He said, when you're one with me, when you're one with my word, when you're connected, you won't be offended. Not tempted. You may be tempted to be offended. You may want to get offended. But when you're connected with God, you have that relationship with God, you won't be offended. I thank God for that promise. I thank God for that promise. Let's stand together tonight.
Lord, I thank you for this time that you've given us in this place. I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you've given us tonight. I pray that as I spoke tonight, these words were not my own opinion, but from you, straight from you. And Lord, as I minister to this church and those that are watching online, I pray that they would receive this word just as much as I have received it. And God, I ask tonight that you would just help us to go forth, understanding and knowing that you did not call us to be offended, but you called us to grow through these pains, to become more like you, to strengthen one another. God, I pray that you help us to solve issues that we have with our brother or sister. Issues within the church, Lord, let us come together. Let us work through these things because really it's probably just a misunderstanding. God, I thank you for the grace that you give us once we get through these issues. I thank you for where you can take us and where you can lead us to. I thank you for the spirit of revival that you bring within each and every one of us once we get through this valley. The relief that comes from settling an offense. Lord, I thank you for everything you've done for us. Again, I thank you for these words tonight. And I thank you for those that, that were here and that are watching. I thank you. I pray that you bless us with your spirit. Bless us with your comfort. Lord, we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.